All right, we're going to start a little bit different this morning. I want to begin with a visualization. So I want everybody participating. So close your eyes. If you're listening online, this includes you. Close your eyes unless you're driving. But we're going to walk you through a visualization that I want your imagination going. And here's the picture. So you've got your hiking shoes on, right? It's a, it's a beautiful day, upper 60s, cool breeze. You have a backpack on. Backpack's really light. All that's in this backpack is a plush feather pillow. But you're going to hike. You've got a climb ahead of you. And for those of you who have hiked, you know that as you go down the trail, there's twists and there's turns. Sometimes you're going uphill. Sometimes you're going downhill. On most trails, there are uh, objects in the way that you got to get around. There may be a tree falling across your path. Maybe there's a stream or a river that you need to hunt for the right way to cross that river. As you get up to the summit, I, I just want you to have this perfect day visualization. Not a cloud in the sky. The sun's beating down. Your heart rate's a little elevated. Your breathing's a little rapid. And you're just taken away by the beauty that you see. You're high, you are elevated. Maybe you're looking down at the ocean. Maybe you're looking over the Grand Canyon. But you're looking at something that's just taking your breath away. But you've had a goal. This is your goal to come up to this, to this point. And you've achieved your goal. And as you're there, you take that backpack off of your back. You unzip it and you take out this plush pillow that's filled with feathers. And with the strength of Samson, you grab on both of the edges of this pillow and you rip it open. What happened? What do you see with the feathers? Where do the feathers go? What's the breeze doing with all of those feathers? Carrying them up and away from you as you stand there just in your moment of glory and bliss. All right, open your eyes. You feel it? It's an illustration of sin in some ways. We're going to watch this illustration of sin in David's life. David was on a journey. And his journey, we don't know when this journey began in his heart. But he's had a straight way of following the Lord. He's a man after God's own heart. But in his own heart, in his own life, David is clearly a man who struggled with lust. David has accumulated wives to himself. David has accumulated concubines to himself. Today we're going to sit in the famous passage of he and Bathsheba and the adultery they commit, the murder of Uriah, the lying and the falsehoods that they had to press into to attempt to keep their sin hidden. Next week we'll sit in chapter 12 in Psalm 32, Psalm 51, where God is convicting David of his sin and his incredible confession and restoration that we see. But in sitting in this visualization, this idea of a feather pillow, uh, my pastor in Salt Lake used it with the idea of gossip. When you, if you tear open a feather pillow in the wind, every single one of those feathers that blows away, it's, it's like gossip, right? It can be titillating to our ears and we can want to press into it and talk about others and give me this tidbit of information. But when we gossip about somebody, we get, we're getting information out into the world that you can't go collect it all back when you're wrong. In David's life, this is a major sin in his life where it's like ripping open this feather pillow. We're going to watch God mend his pillow back together 
And we are going to watch God help David collect some of those feathers and put them back in. But that, that pillow is never restored in David's life. Those feathers that are loose in the world have major consequences in his family and in his culture. So there is forgiveness in Christ. There is mercy in Christ. There is grace in Christ. Always when we come to him, through him, through his sacrifice looking to God to restore to us the joy of our salvation, to be filled with his Holy Spirit, and to get back on that narrow road. But as we're watching in David's life today, the, you know, the feather pillow is a gentle example. I mentioned last week, this is like David just opened up the pin of a grenade and dropped it into the lap of his life, and his life explodes from this point forward. Again, he's going to have many victories in the future, but there's consequences for what goes on in these chapters. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 10. Some of this, if you just kind of read it straight, it doesn't feel like chapter 10... Um, and 11 and 12 really connect, but they absolutely do connect, and I'll give definition how as we read through chapter 10. So 2 Samuel 10 says, It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died. Now, if you remember from chapter 8, to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west, David has subdued the enemies of the nation of Israel wherever he went. God has preserved David, has given David victory. The Ammonites are the last population on the east of Israel, the east side of the Jordan River. These are the last major population that have not been subdued underneath his authority. And that's what's being set up for us. So that was in chapter 8, chapter 9. We have that incredible picture of him uh, looking to fulfill that promise of kindness, God's kindness to Jonathan's descendants. And this attitude of David and kindness carries forward here. So the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So the kindness that he's looking to show to this son who just lost his father, it's the same kindness that he's looking to show to Mephibosheth in the prior chapter. What's interesting about Nahash is his name means serpent. So all the way back at the beginning of uh, Saul's reign, after Saul is crowned king, Nahash, Nahash, however you want to pronounce it, goes to Jabesh Gilead and besieges Jabesh Gilead. And he tells the citizens of Jabesh Gilead, the only way that I'm going to let you out is if I gouge out the right eye of everybody in Jabesh Gilead so that I can bring shame upon you. And the people of Jabesh Gilead send to Saul. Saul comes and becomes their deliverer. It's a great moment in Saul's life. This is that Nahash that died. We don't know about he and David's relationship. We don't know what kind of covenant and treaty they had together. But whatever relationship David had with this guy, it was a friendly relationship. It was a balanced relationship. Now that this man has died, the son is there mourning the loss of his father. And David, wanting to keep good political relationships with the kingdom of Ammon, sends a delegation to them. So, it says, so David sent by the hands of, the, of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he sent comforters to you? 
Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore, Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. It says, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive, made themselves stink to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rohab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men, from Ishtob, 12,000. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and the army of mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gates. And the Syrians of Zobah, Bethrahab, Ishtob, and Makkah were by themselves in the field. So here's what's going on. Bad intelligence, bad intel, right? So the advisors to the new king of Ammon, they're looking at David's behavior what we just sat through in chapter 8, David has subdued all the nations, north, south, east, and rest, west around Israel. Ammon is the only one who is not under the authority of David at this point. What would you counsel the king? I'd probably be on the page of these advisors. Hey, this is what David has been doing. Do you really think that he's just sending comforters to you and to keep the relationship between our nations as it was? I don't think so. I think David's here to spy us out and to conquer us, to put us under his boot. It's bad intel, but the king takes the bad intel advice, and what does he do with these diplomats? So you sit in modern, uh, you know, just modern times as the United States of America, we have diplomatic missions in different countries. They are to be representatives of the people of the United States as they're in those countries. But when they're in those countries, there's a diplomatic immunity. There's a specific respect that comes with that position because there has to be trust in the relationship. The people of Ammon would also have their delegation there in Israel to keep these channels open, to keep peace, and all that goes along with international diplomacy. But here, the king takes the ambassadors, takes the messengers, takes the diplomats, and shaves half of their beards off. So this is, this is like spitting in somebody's face. This is extremely offensive in the culture because your masculinity is associated with your beard, beard back in these days. Not only that, he cuts off their robes at the waist, so they're naked from the waist down as they're leaving the city of Ramah and going back home. Hopefully it didn't take them too long to get garments. But as they're making their way back, word got to David about what happened. David says, stay in Jericho. David's containing that, uh, that political issue so that David doesn't look weak, so these men don't come back into the community shame-faced and anger the population. So David's going to deal with this the way that he feels that he needs to deal with it. So he's containing it politically. Stay there until your beards grow back, and they're going to sit there and process through what needs to transpire. So when the people of Ammon realize that they make themselves stink, it's uh-oh. So they gather together and go hire some of the Syrians. So in chapter 8, again, David had put a big chunk of these different groups that are there in modern-day Syria underneath his authority. Here, some of those that aren't under his authority are being hired as mercenaries by the Ammonites to, hey, come and help us. 
And this is the scene that's set up. But here's the thing. So David, in his position as king and judge, one of his main responsibilities is to be the military general. It is David's job to take the people out to war and to bring them back. As we said in chapter 8, David is going out to war, and wherever David is going, the anointed one, in that relationship with God, God is the one that is giving his anointed chosen king victory over all of these different peoples. So as we sit in chapter 10 of 2 Samuel here, what is David, who does David send? He sends Joab. Rather than going to war himself, David sends Joab to go out for him. Now, why? Don't know. The pressures of being king, maybe he has some domestic issues that he needs to deal with. Maybe he's just getting to be a tired old man and doesn't want to go out and swing a sword anymore. We don't know his reasons, but rather than going out himself, he sends his general to go out. So in verse 9, it says, Joab, so the, the people of Ammon, they're in Ramah, in major capital. It's, uh, it's the capital of Jordan today. I'm, I'm losing the name. There's about 4 million people there today. Major community, but it's been consistently inhabited since even before this time. So they're there in Ramah. People are gated in, walled in the city. The military is in there. The military is coming out of the gate and in battle array at Ramah, which is towards the south, and then the Syrians have come down from the north, and they're set up in their battle lines. So Joab's in the middle. He has a military to the north of them, and he has a military to the south of him. So verse 9 says, when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best. Literally, he chose some of Israel's chosen and put them in battle array against the Syrians, and the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, uh, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. But regardless, I love this, regardless of how strong the enemy is, what's our encouragement? Verse 12, be of good courage. It literally, it means be strong, be strengthened. Our strength is in the Lord always. Be of good courage and let us be strong. Why? For our people, for the cities of our God. May the Lord do what is good in his sight. Again, he's, as a general, you got some of David's mighty men there with, with uh, Joab. So these are seasoned soldiers that are going to war. They're recognizing the, the unknownness of how a battle can transpire. He has his battle plan, and as a general speaking to his soldiers, everybody be strong in the Lord, be strong for our people, be strong for the cities of God, and let the Lord's will be done. Great perspective. As we, as we sit in this morning's subject matter, I, have it, I titled it, To Battle. Joab is going to battle. David has sent Joab to battle. The Ammonites and the Syrians are going to battle as the enemy. So this, this war cry of going to battle, it's all perspectives. 
Don't ever think that just because you don't feel like you're engaged, you are not engaged in battle, that there is not a battle being waged against you. David's at home, everything was fine, and all of a sudden the battle is bringing the war to him physically and his people. Verse 13 says, So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. Pretty interesting because, and again, this is, this is going to be, there's a warning for David in this passage. When David sent Joab to go to the war, God protected his kids but he protected his kids by putting fear in the enemy and by standing up in strength and courage in the Lord, the enemy fleed from Joab. It's good, but it wasn't a victory. Partial victory, but not an all-out victory because the enemy in verse 15 says, when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together again. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Halam. And Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Halam. Now, verse 17 here, David is not just sending Joab and the boys. David is coming out as king as he's supposed to. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Halam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the, of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. And here's the main idea and the main contrast. When, the, when David sent Joab, God did not give him the victory. When David went out as he was supposed to, God gave him that victory that he's given to him in regards to all the warfare and all the subduing of the nations that he's done around him. Now the Ammonites are now subdued and under his authority. And the teaching point, the major, again, how this whole scene and what David ought to have been reminded in his life and his role and his calling by the Lord presses into the first verse of chapter 11. It says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So this is a setup for a circumstance that's going to bring apart David's explosion in his life. But David is not doing what he's supposed to be doing in verse 1. The, the, the scene is there's a major victory over the Syrians, and now winter is coming. The soldiers all go home. 
It's winter time, it's wet, it's rainy, it's cold, it's not efficient time to be engaged in warfare. There's home responsibilities to take care of. But now in the springtime, the weather's getting nice, the winter rains have stopped. This is the time, historically, where it's time to go to battle. And David's decision is to remain at home. Now, before we go picking through David's sin, I want us to go and sit in some words of Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Because it's really easy to point our finger at David and say, David's an idiot. I would never do what David did. (sighs) David is a picture of all of our hearts, as so many of the biblical characters are. We have their lives as example, good and bad, to and in our relationship with the Lord and how God consistently relates to his creatures and those whom he has called, those whom he has chosen. But it's really easy to condemn David for his adultery and sit there and say, well, I would never commit adultery on my spouse. It's really easy to condemn David for his lying and trying to cover it up that we're going to press into. It's really easy to condemn David for murdering Uriah. I would never murder somebody. You? Again, when we sit with Jesus... And we sit with his authority and with his truth. We're going we're to read through just a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount is the people of Israel are listening to Jesus as they're on this grassy hillside above the, the Sea of Galilee, listening to the teacher teach. They are astonished by his words by his truth, by his clarity, by his authority. The words that are coming out of Christ's mouth, they astonish the people. And as we sit and read this passage, these, these, I love to read Jesus. I love reading Jesus' words. He astonishes me. He corrects me. He challenges me. But as we are going to go, we're going to read through this to get a framework for David's life and just the subject matter. But as we press through these words, as Jesus is speaking to us today, You have to remember, he's speaking to live human beings on this hillside 2,000 years ago that are struggling in their flesh, in their minds, in their relationships, that Jesus has to teach them about hatred and about lust and about being salt and light and who he is and his word. Jesus had to teach that culture the exact same things that he needs to teach us in our culture today. I love this. I really want to teach and go slow, but we're going to have to go fast because we just want this for the framework to go back and look at David and Bathsheba. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. This isn't just being... You know, weeping over being hurt. There's a, there's, this is dealing with your relationship with the Lord in regards to sin, that offness. You one day shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we have a strong desire through his spirit for righteousness. What's the promise? You should be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the persecuted, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, pause. Put yourself in David's shoes. Do you think David would amen this in his life? A thousand years before Jesus is saying these words? Like, do you think David, as if David were to listen to these words, do you think he would be saying, Amen? Amen. Let it be in my heart, Lord. Let it be in my mind, Lord. Lord, give me a pure heart. I hunger and I thirst for your righteousness. Lord, as a king and as a judge, enable me to be a peacemaker. Lord, enable me to let me mourn over the things that grieve your heart. Let me rejoice with the things that rejoice in your heart. Is that David in our passage? Yes. David is not setting out his mourning. I can't wait to sin today. I can't wait to drop a grenade in my lap. David loves Yahweh. But there's been something in David's entire life. Again, he has struggled with lust. He has struggled with his relationships with women. That is evident by his polygamy, whether it's political marriages and his concubines that are essentially just for his personal entertainment. David has a harem, but he's still a man after God's own heart. God's walking alongside of him day after day, checking his heart, trying to keep him in balance. And there's days that David has been walking the straight and narrow path with Jesus. And there's been other days in our little visualization where David's walked a very crooked path in his mind and in his heart. And again, on this day, when we go back to chapter 12, or chapter 11, it's, it's a crooked day in David's life. David was to be just as we are. We are the salt of the earth. Salt loses its flavor. How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing and to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Again, Jesus teaching. We are, we are to have a flavor when it comes to this metaphor of tasting food. May our life be salt. May it have flavor in the life of others, hopefully making them thirsty for the Holy Spirit. Amen. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill, it can't be hidden, nor they light a lamp or put it under a basket. The light's meant to be on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. May he shine through us. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, whatever we do, you know, that we're not doing it so that we get the attaboys and, wow, look at them. It's no, the things that we do, may people just look at our lives and glorify our Father in heaven. It's awesome. Verse 17, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle, for our English, it'd be one dotting of the I or the crossing of the T will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Because again, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the righteous requirements of the law. 
And we get his righteousness through faith in him. What a gift. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, listen to this statement, unless your personal righteousness exceeds as beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, so put in that position whoever your religious heroes may be, unless your personal righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the person that you think is the most righteous, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We should be left with, well, then how does anybody get into the kingdom of heaven? It's only by... His righteousness. All right, now getting to the heart of the matter. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said of old. Here's what the Old Testament says. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Again, just progressive language here, but it's that, it's that anger that wells up in us that comes out in self-righteous judgment over the behavior of another person. This is the danger. Again, that anger, it wells up in lashing out with words, and that anger is the root that can lash out with physical violence and where all murder begins is in this position of anger therefore if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you you leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first be reconciled to your brother make sure that you have right relationships on the horizontal even as you're seeking to engage on that vertical relationship with the lord then come and offer your gift agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him lest your adversary deliver you to the judge the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. Both of these are out of the Ten Commandments, by the way. Those tablets that were in the Ark of the Covenants. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus is getting to our thought life, our hearts. May not be expressed in behavior, but boy, behavior, again, it all finds its roots in our hearts. Verse 29, if your right eye, be radical with it. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Again, this isn't physical, but he's, he's, he's teaching how radical we are to be with any kind of sin in our life. But there is a special uh, temptation, scarring result of being obedient, disobedient to the Lord when it comes to sexual sins and when it, has, when it comes to having sexual integrity in our relationship with the Lord and with other, with other people as we're living this out. There are many blessings that come from living out God's word and his will. It's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your, one of your members perish than your whole body 
than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus goes on there. I'd encourage you to read the rest of it. But both of these, I wanted to make sure that we have the heart of the matter, the heart of our God, his will, his revelation, why he gives commands, why do we are to have guardrails in our life when it comes to all the varieties and categories of sin. But there's something specific as Jesus, again, is teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, these are people from 3,000 years ago, different culture from us, that we'd probably lift up and say that they aren't dealing with the temptations that we deal with in our culture. And we're totally wrong. Jesus is looking at this mass of people, and he knows that they're, they're fighting against anger in their lives, against family members, against neighbors, against the oppression of Rome. They're also fighting and struggling against lust. Jesus goes on, and he defines marriage, again, because in this culture in this day, it's just as easy to get divorced back then as it is today. It's just to shelve your spouse and go do what you want to do because the grass is greener somewhere else. And Jesus, again, getting to the heart of the matter in regards to all of these emotions that we all engage in to different degrees. Some of you, when it comes to lust, this may be your sin and your issue. When it comes to the statistics of our culture, Half of this room is struggling with pornography to one degree or another, male and female. It's just the statistics of our culture. The fight is real. The battle is real. We are not to make excuses. We are to confess. We are to repent. We're to establish guardrails in our lives to make it easy, to make it hard, sorry, to make it not easy for us to uh, fall into temptation. And the visualization that I took you through earlier, there were obstacles in that visualization. You had to climb over the stream or the, you know, over this tree, look for a way around before you got to the point where the tearing of the pillow happened. Have guards in your life, whether it's with gossip, whether it's with anger, whether it's with lust, whether it's with pride. There's all, this, all the different sins that we are so easily distracted by in our own flesh. God is telling us that our strength in the battle is only found in him. Ephesians 6, we are to be strong in the power of his might because it doesn't matter if you don't think that you are engaged in a battle. You are in a spiritual battle every single day of your life. Now, back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Read through those, that first verse just defining in the spring of the year, David should have gone out to war rather than sending Joab, but he remains behind. And this begins to be the definition of an evil day in, that can occur in all of our lives. When you have an opportunity to sin, when you have the temptation to sin, and when you have the desire to sin, it's a definition of an evil day when all three of those coincide. David is fighting with the temptations of the devil, his world at the time, his flesh, his lust, whatever he's got going on. David's dealing with that in his daily basis. But he could have been freed from that temptation on this day by being in a different place where he should have been. So he's in a place where he ought not to have been, which brings about the occasion, and here's the occasion. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. If you have never, if you had never read the Bible up to this point, if you didn't know David's story and what's going on in this scene, and you were just following with the life story, or if you can remember the first time, you know, you're going through 1 Samuel, looking at David, and 2 Samuel, I mean, here's a man who is after God's own heart, he's made a couple of mistakes, but like, he's a, he's a, he's a man of God. When you read, when you come to this passage, it ought to be, whoa, like, what happened. This was not a singular occasion in David's life. There is a history in his heart that has brought him up to this point. And here's the scene that's being set. David's home, most homes in this time, it's cool in the nights, it's, you know, desert air, that kind of stuff, so you're looking for the breeze. Most sleeping spaces were on the roof, so here his house has been built. We are told it's the king's house. His bed is on the roof. Now, in my imagination, I am, I would not be dogmatic, but I am 99% sure that David's bed is not empty. David has multiple wives and David has multiple concubines. That desire of his flesh, my assumption was already fulfilled that evening. But there's something that's going on in David's heart where he is agitated. He is getting up from bed, and he's walking his roof line. Now, in the city of David, it's not that big at his time. We're told that maybe a thousand inhabitants live within the city walls. The houses that are closest to him are going to be associated with his advisors, right? So as David is walking, you know, he is agitated in some fashion, he's restless, he's got something going on in his heart, he gets up off the bed, and there he is along the railing of his roof, and he sees something, and David says, whoa. Right, this wasn't, uh, this is, you know, that voyeuristic kind of behavior, there is something that captured his eye, and rather than turning away, knowing that there's an issue here, he presses into that image and continues to linger and continues to look. Now, Bathsheba has her role in this. Bathsheba is not innocent. We don't have the details in regards to David's heart and her heart. We're just given the circumstances. But we're told that she is bathing on a roof. Like, how far away is she? Is she the next roof line over, so it's only like 20 feet? Is she at the back of the room where it's 50 feet? You know, is she 100 feet away? Like, how hard does David have to press in? It's nighttime. He's gotten up from his bed. It's dark. Is she backlit? Is she frontlit? What the heck is she doing on a roof bathing? Right? Does she have a, does she have a shift on that is covering, uh, you know, the, the details? And David just wants to see more of the details? Or is she fully in the nude? We don't know the details. What we do know is that she's cleansing her body from her impurity. So when it comes to a woman's menstrual cycle, there, this is an awesome picture in the Old Testament. It's not that, you, that a woman is gross and defiled, but what's being described is women, you have an egg that is released one time a month. And in that imagery, what does an egg have the potential of? Life. 
When you look at the, the purity that God, what the, the image that's being given, why there's this religious practice of a woman needs to bathe after her menstrual cycle is over, there's a recognition that a life, the potential for life has been lost on a monthly basis. If you go sit in Leviticus 18, there's a similar instruction for men, a little bit different for guys, but you can go press into that teaching. So that's what she is doing, bathing on the roof. What the reason we're being told in the passage is so that we know that Bathsheba is not pregnant. She has just had her menstrual cycle. She has just now purified her body with the religious washing. So we know she is not pregnant with Uriah's child because Uriah is off at war. Now, the proximity of Bathsheba to David. She's close in some fashion. And how we know that she's close is who her dad is. Eliam is mentioned in chapter 23 as one of David's mighty men. David is probably, let's place him at 50. Bathsheba is probably somewhere in her 20s. Probably more newly married because we don't believe or understand that she has any kids outside of her relationship with David. Her father is one of David's champions. So this, her dad is a man that David has gone to battle after battle after battle together. And he's not just some nobody. He's a named man. He has a reputation he has a loyalty to David. He is a valiant warrior. And David sees his daughter and he forgets about his relationship with God. He forgets about his relationship with Bathsheba's dad. And he's just looking at this woman's body. Not only is uh, Eliam one of David's mighty men, uh, his father is Ahithophel. Ahithophel, we're going to see later on in David's life, Ahithophel is one of David's primary counselors. So not only is he violating relationship with one of his brother-in-arms, he's also violating one, a relationship with a very respected elder in his life as he's lusting after Bathsheba. And David, again, rather than turning away, there, he starts stepping over the barriers that he has in his life. This isn't a private sin in David's life. He asks his servants, who is that? That's, that's Bathsheba. She's the, she's the daughter of Eliam, one of your mighty men, and she's the wife of Uriah. Uriah is also one of the named mighty men of David in the Bible. So David's violating all kinds of relationships on the vertical and horizontal in his life. And he sends for her. He sends messengers to go get her. Now, it says that he takes her. This isn't a violent seizing and taking. It's just David is reaching into this woman's life and saying, hey, come to me. And what does Bathsheba do? She doesn't throw up any guards. She doesn't sound any alarms. She comes. So we don't know what's going on in her heart. We don't know what's going on in her relationship with Uriah. We don't know how David is maybe using and abusing his power and position to manipulate a younger woman who's going to be in awe of the king. But Bathsheba has her own culpability in what's going on and what's progressing. 
And what they think is a private sin, which isn't too private, because you can't tell me that David's servants don't know what's going on as he invites this lady for dinner, and he's all dressed up and anointed and smelling good as king, trying to, you know, show all of his feathers and that kind of stuff to woo this young lady. She presses into it. Do the servants know what's going on? Absolutely. Do you think that the servants went and told the wives and the concubines what was going on? Absolutely. The rumors, everybody knows what's going on. People know who David is. People know who Bathsheba is. They know what just went on behind the scenes. And she goes home, and then a good month later, she has to send a message to David that says, I'm pregnant. And what does David do? He repents, right? This is where he justified his sin This is where the pillow has been torn open and the feathers are blown about everywhere. And now David's got to go and try and collect as many feathers as he can to keep this private. So what does David do? It says, then David sent to Joab saying, hey, Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sends Uriah to David. And Uriah, when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing. Hey, Uriah, how you doing? What's going on? Tell Tell me, is Joab a good general, bad general? What's going on? Give me the dirt. How are, how are the people doing? How are they, how's everybody else doing up, up there in the, the good old war? How's, how's the war prospering, right? Just all this shop talk, right? Now David gets to the heart of the matter. Well, it's great to see you. Thanks for all the news. And David says to him, why don't, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? Wash your feet is a euphemism for, why don't you, why don't you go home and spend time with your bride? So Uriah departed from the king's house. And a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, so next day it's like, news comes, Uriah didn't go home, he slept with the servants, David's calling Uriah again, you know, didn't you come on a long journey? Why why don't you go down to your house? Uriah says to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and his servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. We don't know if the ark has been sent to the battlefield. There's part of the language. It's maybe, which gives weight to this conflict with Ammon as being defined as a holy war. I'm not sure if I really agree with that or not, but what, uh, what Uriah is conveying, again, in the culture of the day, it's this, hey, my, my brother-at-arms, they're out in the battlefield. I came home as a messenger. I'm to be out there in the tents. How, how could I enjoy the pleasures of my home and my wife when, when my brothers are out there on the field? So this is integrity that is important in the culture and the time that he's seeking to keep in his own heart. A great line to pull out from Uriah's statement is that last thing, I will not do this thing. And again, this is, this is something... Just to say to yourself in the mirror, when you're, when you're feeling, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, whatever the temptation is before you, being able to pause and have a moment with, with the Lord, but even to pause, go step into the bathroom and look at yourself in the mirror and just tell yourself, I will not do this thing, God. Help me. 
I won't. But I'm not going to find the strength in myself to not find myself susceptible to any sin. So therefore, we are to stand strong in the strength of the Lord. So David's issue continues to grow. So David says, Uriah, wait here today also, and, and you know, tomorrow I'll let you depart. So Uriah, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So what David's doing is he's seeking to stall in Uriah's life. Maybe, maybe he'll succumb to desire. He knows his wife's just around the block, and he'll want to go home, and maybe that'll do it. And that doesn't work. So in verse 13, now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. So maybe if I ply him with alcohol, that'll... Uh, Put down to self-control a little bit, and he'll go home. Dang it, Uriah. And at evening, he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And David, unable to contain the issue, has to go the next step. So in the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab, and, it's, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So look at what David is doing. Not only is he lying to try and cover things up, he writes a letter, gives it to Uriah, it's nice and sealed, to go give his own death warrant to Joab. Joab doesn't know why David is doing what he's doing. David's just being an obedient general. Uriah's done something. He's made the king mad, he's spy, he's lost integrity. Uriah's done something where he needs to die. So as a general, he's going to position this mighty man and his, and his men before he's um, going to put him in danger. It says, so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So, by the hand of warfare, David has intentionally murdered Uriah. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the, telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why do you approach so near the city with, uh, when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth, which is Gideon and Judges? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died there in Thebes? And go read uh, Judges 9 for that. When did, uh, why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So Joab, in preparation, sends the messenger. Messenger went, comes to David, tells David all that Joab sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against, against us and came out to us in the field that we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gates. The archers shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messengers, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Not sure what that looked like for her. 
When her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. Oh, what a good king taking care of his servant's wife. This poor little pregnant lady, her husband is dead. Isn't David gracious? David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, one of many, bore him a son. Last line. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and it literally was evil in the sight of the Lord. Worship team, come on up. A lot to cover this morning. This is, a lot of this is in background for what we're going to press into next week, which is what's the resolution? God needs to send a man into David's life to confront him with the sin down the road, even as his sin is eating away at him for over a year. I'd encourage you to read Psalm 32. That restoration of forgiveness will sit in Psalm 51 as David is crying out to be restored by God, confessing his sin, not in a worldly way, but in a godly way. But as we sit in this morning's passage in these two chapters, this whole idea of battle, every single one of us is engaged in a battle every day. You are fighting against yourself and your flesh. You are fighting against the temptations and the permissions that our culture gives to us. It's not just, oh, look at how evil the world is and everything that they're doing. What the world says that it's okay for us to do We give ourselves that permission because we find somebody else that is doing what we want to do and we press into those behaviors really easy. It's defined as peer pressure, even if you don't think you're being like you're susceptible to it or not. As we look at David's life in what is going on just in this chapter, God has given him a variety of warnings. He's given him a variety of blessings. We're going to see that God has given David uh, all the desires of his heart. It would give David more if he just asked. But there was something going on in David's heart where he was dissatisfied with life. He's tired. He's worn out. He's weak. And he's got a desire, and he wants something. And regardless of how many hindrances there were in his life, as he was going down that path, he's stepping around one or after another, moving this hindrance out of the way, moving that hindrance out of the way. And when he got what he wanted on that night, I guarantee he was elated. Maybe the next day, some of the guilt started to seep in as there's now a consequence, which is a child from that evening. Now he's got to do damage control, and he pursues lies and falsehoods and starts pulling in other people into his sin unbeknownst to them. And the lies take David's heart. The man of God, they take David's heart, not just to adultery, but they take him to the position, I am willing to kill, to hide. And it takes... Again, his soul being eaten at by conviction to get him to confess. I have seen repetitiously in ministry over the last 20 years, the man or the woman who stops going to battle, those are the people and those are the circumstances when we drop grenades into our laps and we explode. 
And that damage is felt in our family life, it's felt in our church life, it's felt in our work life. David should have gone to battle in the strength of the Lord. Even though he's tired, even though he didn't want it to, even though he had his list of excuses, he was not living out his calling and his responsibility as the anointed king. We have a calling and a responsibility in our relationship with the Lord to put off our flesh to put off the desires of our flesh, to put off our will. If you want to save your life, you lose your life for his name's sake. You take up your cross, and it's hard. It takes, there are some moments in our life where there's, there's just a moment where God does a transformation in the heart and there's a shift. There are other things. I have guards in my life when it comes to lust, when it comes to pornography, when it comes to relationship with women. I have intentional guardrails in my life so that I don't blow up. I have intentional guardrails in my life when it comes to alcohol. I don't want to be somebody else's excuse. I don't want to be a stumbling block. I don't want to give my per myself permission to indulge because I would. I'm weak. I have temptations. I have tendencies. I am studied by the enemy. I am watched. And the enemy is looking for an opportune time to come into my life for me to make the choice to blow it up. The enemy cannot blow up my life. He cannot take me from Jesus. He cannot destroy me. He cannot kill me. But I can make the choice. So the, the humble prayers, we're going to press into communion. And again, come up and get communion during the first song. Hold on to it. We're going to remember the sacrifice of our Lord. We went and spent time, and we're long-winded this morning to, to get into Matthew 5, because we need to know and understand. We're not just talking about these big, gross sins that we would say, I would never do that. I'm a good person. When Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter, we have a desire that is off within us. We have self-righteousness. We have judgment. We want to gossip. We're fighting against pride. We're fighting against greed. We're fighting against, we have all of these battles in our own souls every day. And it's with Paul, wretched man that I am. This is a body of death. Jesus, I need you to come in and transform the way that I think. I engage in this world in every, every single day. There's not a single, not one time do I ever get on the internet where there is not the temptation of skin. Not once. It doesn't matter what news site I am on, there's the bait. And the bait is to get your eyes off of the Lord. It's okay. You're not hurting anybody. You deserve it. The self-justification comes out of all of us. And that's just one sin in a list of many. May you have a passionate and vibrant vision of Jesus today and every day as we walk with him. Because I need to look into the mirror of his word and walk through those words with Jesus on the Sermon of Mount and say, yes and amen, Lord. Give me a pure heart. Help me to be a merciful man. Help me to be quiet and peaceable and gentle. Help me to stand up in boldness in this culture as salt and life. Let me pray for my enemies. Let me go the second mile. But Lord, keep my heart from anger and murder. Keep my heart from lust. And whatever I need to do to radically cut it off, do it.
God is not going to put you in a headlock and make you obey him. It's your choice. Take up courage in God and joy as you go down that path and rejoice in the guardrails that you need in your life. Rejoice in the hindrances that he puts in your life to keep you from going down the path of sin. Rejoice every single day that that temptation that comes to you, regardless of what it is, what is he faithful to do? He gives us the way out. And the turn, the turn is you're heading towards a dangerous path. The way out and the turn, that, that off-ramp is always directly to Jesus Christ. Always. And if it's an off-ramp into anything else, it's just a segue into another sin. May your king be Jesus of your soul, of your mind, and may he transform us into his beautiful image. Amen? Amen. Come grab communion and let's worship.